On this week's 51%, we look back on the story of Jane with activist and author Laura Kaplan reflecting on her time with the Underground Abortion Counseling Service in 1970s Chicago and its relevance today. Ordinary people working together can change the world, and that's how the world changes. We also hear from WSKG's Phoebe taylor Vuolo about how the close proximity of abortion clinics and crisis pregnancy centers confuses pregnant patients. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Today, we're revisiting a frequent topic of this show. Over the summer, the Supreme Court overturned the landmark decision Roe v. Wade and its ruling for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, ending constitutional protection for abortion rights in the U.S. But just as Roe failed to resolve the debate over abortion rights, Dobbs is also unlikely to settle the issue. The outcry resulting from the Dobbs decision, depending on who you ask, may have contributed to the Democratic Party's stronger-than-expected performance in the recent midterm elections. Although Republicans were able to flip the House, Democrats maintained their hold on the Senate, and multiple states either shut down ballot measures seeking to restrict abortion rights or approved measures further enshrining them. On the flip side, some anti-abortion advocates say the midterm results weren't that bad for Republicans, proving the issue wasn't as potent as Democrats may have hoped. The future of the issue in post-Roe America is dicey and complicated, and that is reminding many of what the country looked like before the landmark case. Laura Kaplan was a member of Chicago's Abortion Counseling Service, more popularly known as the Jane Collective, or simply by its codename Jane, which helped women obtain abortions in the years leading up to Roe v. Wade. The underground organization of Women Helping Women was founded by activist Heather Booth and operated from 1969 to 1973, when abortion was still illegal in much of the U.S., including Chicago. Its story of activism through service has drawn renewed interest in recent years, as seen with the 2022 HBO documentary The Janes. Kaplan recounts the group's history in her recently reissued book, The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. I was 24, and I had moved back to Chicago from New York in the fall of 1971. And shortly after I moved back, uh, my very dear friend Alice found out she was pregnant and didn't want to be, and she saw in an underground newspaper in Chicago a little ad that said something like, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane with the phone number. And so she did. And she got an abortion through Jane. And afterwards, she came to my apartment and she was so excited by the experience, which is kind of surprising to say the least. And I was captivated by her story of what happened and uh, her experience, which she thought was illuminating and educational and very much centered around her and her needs. And I thought to myself, hmm, this sounds interesting. 
I'd wanted to get involved in the women's liberation movement. And I hadn't been thinking about abortion because, as you may know, New York legalized abortion in 1970. So it wasn't coming from New York. It wasn't topmost in my mind. But because of her enthusiasm, I was very intrigued. And so she took me to meet her counselor who lived a few blocks from me and who told us that the group was starting a new counselor training series of sessions. And so I said, good, I signed up and uh, the rest is my history, so to speak. So were underground newspapers the usual way that women found Jane? How else did you get the word out there, I guess, without jeopardizing the group? Yeah, we used to joke that we were the best known secret in the city of Chicago. So if you needed, I actually had a very good friend who was uh, very politically active and involved with all kinds of political stuff. And she didn't know about Jane. And I said to her, this is years later, I said to her, if you or someone you knew needed an abortion, you would have found out about Jane. So uh, we walked a tightrope. We wanted women to find us and we didn't want to get busted. (laughs) So it was kind of a tightrope. And then we more often or not fell on the side of wanting women to find us. But our information got spread more so word of mouth. And a lot of doctors referred to us. A lot of police officers referred women to us, sort of like that. Once a patient found their way to Jane, How did things roll from there? What services did you guys start out offering, at least, and how did that transition? Well, what we initially did and what groups all over the country, women's liberation groups, and also there were clergy groups all over the country helping women find illegal abortions. But for the women's groups, what we all did was we sussed out the underground practitioners to find the most reliable and reputable ones. And then we prepared women for those abortions and we helped raise money because illegal abortions were very expensive. You know, there were groups all over the country who did what we initially did. Uh, But very quickly and early on, the real center of the group determined that just sending women off and saying, well, everybody we've sent comes back alive was not really good enough. If we wanted to give women control over this experience, we as a group had to take control of it ourselves. So we started looking for one of these illegal practitioners who we could get some leverage with and some control over the circumstances. And we found You know, and a lot of people were like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. But we found one doctor, or I should say supposed doctor, who was willing to work with us. And over the course of fairly like a year or less, we were able to gain more control of the situation so that we were present. Members of the group were actually present during the abortions. We organized the workplaces. I mean, his MO before that was he would have women sign themselves into motel rooms. And then he and his nurse would show up once they were in the hotel motel room. 
Were motel rooms kind of like the usual setup? Where else would you have patients and doctors meet? Well, we didn't have an official place, Mm -hmm. but most of our time, once we gained control, then we used our apartments, our friends' apartments, our houses, any place we could beg or borrow for the day. And you can imagine what that was like. I mean, what if somebody came up to you and said, do you mind if we use your apartment for a day to do illegal abortions? You might very likely say, no, I don't want you to do that. (laughs) But this was a different time and people were, you know, people were very involved in what we call the movement, which was the confluence of the student movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. So I think people generally were more comfortable with skirting the laws. So yeah, we worked out of our own apartments and our friends' apartments, basically, and we moved around the city. Mm-hmm. Initially, the group was based in Hyde Park, which is the home of the University of Chicago. And a lot of the original members were uh, officially or unofficially allied in some ways with the university. What do you think people most misunderstand about this time? Because in my own history classes growing up, I feel like the extent of the abortion conversation was abortion was largely illegal until it got constitutional protection with Roe v. Wade in 1973. And that's it. There wasn't a whole lot of like info from before or after, really. So for those who don't know, like, what was it like back then? Well, before, um, there's a great book called When Abortion Was a Crime, and it's mostly focused in Chicago. So you can really learn a lot. And it's by Leslie Regan. I think the general, what we generally knew before the women's movement, before women started talking publicly with each other about abortion, the common understanding was every once in a while a woman had an illegal abortion and she died from it. And we'd all seen the pictures of crumpled bodies in the alleyways and stuff like that. But when women started talking to each other, in consciousness raising groups and women's groups, what they discovered was lots of women were looking for abortions and lots of women found them. And although they were maybe not very pleasant experiences, they were alive afterwards and able to talk about that experience. So like I said, women's liberation groups all over the country tried to make a safer passage for women who were exploring the underground. So it was very difficult. And if you went to a hospital in Chicago with problems from an illegal abortion, most likely the police were called in and you were told you were going to die, whether that was true or not, to try to get a deathbed confession from you of who you went to, et cetera. So it was extremely unpleasant. Some of these practitioners were drunk, some were violent, some required sexual favors before the abortion. You know, you're pregnant anyway. So, you know, just terrible stuff. Women's groups and the clergy groups all over the country tried to make it better. Well, eventually Jane got to a point where members began performing the abortions themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about how that transition happened? Eventually, we got to a place, and part of it was that New York had legalized abortions. And for $300, including airfare, you could fly to New York and get an abortion and fly back. 
So that really changed the kinds of women who were left in Chicago who couldn't do that. Poor women, young women, teenagers, women who were in such controlling circumstances that they couldn't even leave for a day. So the most needy, and that was a negotiating point with our supposed doctor. And I think at some point he realized this wasn't going to be a money-making deal for him. And he decided he was going to train the woman who was really at the center of the group, a woman I called Jenny. In the book, I give everyone pseudonyms because when I wrote the book, there were people who just didn't want their identity disclosed. There were people who didn't care. And so just for convenience, I guess, I gave everyone pseudonyms, but her real name was Jody. Um, he convinced her and he had to convince her to let him teach her, you know, here, take this instrument. And she was like, no, 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 I don't want to touch anything, you know. Um, but he convinced her. And once she took that step, she realized that if he could do it, she could do it. And she was doing it. And she needed the larger group to accept that. And the way they were going to accept that was first they had to accept that this guy that we had been using at that point for almost a year and a half, who was extremely competent and extremely kind and nurturing with women, was not in fact a doctor. And so it was divulged to the larger group. Our guy is not a doctor and the room exploded and women were crying and we're lying to women and we're just like the back alleys and we have to fold and calmer heads prevailed. And in fact, during that meeting, I think one woman said she had made the leap in her head. If he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we can do it too and we can charge a whole lot less. And so that's how the group evolved, unlike any other group that I know of in the country. So that by the time I joined, very shortly after I joined, the group was all women and we charged $100 of what you could afford, which would wind up being an average of $40 or $50 a person uh, with lots of people paying nothing or $8 or $24, whatever they had. And we had a roving full-service abortion clinic operating in the city of Chicago. Did you carry out any abortions as a member? I was in the queue. We had an a apprenticeship kind of program. So you'd learn the first step and the second step. And I had learned quite a few of the steps. I was at the point of instruments in the uterus because we, given the technology at the time, we were doing DNC abortions and inducing miscarriages. Um, so I was in the queue when Roe happened. So that sort of put an end to all of us who were in the line getting trained. As you said, the Supreme Court's decision of Roe v. Wade in 1973 established constitutional protections for abortion in the U.S., until recently anyway, and Jane ultimately folded. What was the thought process behind the scenes of, of making that decision to fold? We stayed in operation until the first clinics opened, which was, I think, and I may be wrong on this, but I think March of 73, early spring, and then we folded. It was a lot of discussion within the group because our practice was so different from the experience you get in a doctor when you go to a doctor. 
still different from the experience you get now when you go to a doctor, because we really made the woman the center of the experience so that someone was always sitting with her, holding her hand. There would never been a situation where um, there were always two of Jane members in the room with her. We would never have been talking to each other over her head. She was the center of this event. We wanted to underline as much as we could the power of her decision to make a choice about her own life. This life, not this life. And we really wanted to underscore that with her. And we provided so much education. You know, we had copies of Our Bodies Ourselves, which was then called Women in Their Bodies. And it was half an inch thick and on newsprint and cost 35 cents a copy. And we gave those out to women and we gave them extras for their friends and their sister or whoever. And we had the birth control handbook out of Montreal. We did a huge amount of birth control education. One thing that I think you probably wouldn't know about is that, you know, now you're used to going into a bookstore and there's shelves and shelves of books on women's health. There was nothing until Our Bodies Ourselves came out in December of 1970. There was nothing. There were no books in bookstores that you could get or in libraries or, you know, there was just no information out there. We had to rely on the information our doctors deigned to share with us, which wasn't very much, you know, that we really saw our care as the province of the professionals and that we didn't own it. So we tried to change that. And we knew that once women started going to regular medical clinics for abortions or their gynecologist for abortion, it would be the same kind of medical care they always got, which was kind of crappy, you know, it wasn't empowering, you know, the medical profession needs you to be passive. But, you know, we were risking a lot, you know, so you want to take risks where it's necessary to take risks. There was that cohort within the group that felt like what we were doing was so unique that we should keep doing it. And there was on the other side, people who felt one, that we were all burned out and that whatever protection we thought we were getting from the establishment, once it was legal, that protection would be gone. You know, we didn't have the right to do what we were doing. Nobody sanctioned, you know, doctors may have sent their patients to us, but they didn't sanction what we were doing. I mean, they sanctioned it enough that they knew they could trust women in our hands. So it was a combination of those things. Now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe and the issue has been tossed back to states, can you see something like Jane popping back up in states where abortion is restricted? How do you feel about the movement going forward? Well, I think, you know, different times call for different actions and the technology of abortion has progressed so that people don't need to be doing DNCs, doing surgery, which is dangerous. Already, there are all kinds of creative ways that people are, like I said, already participating to violate um, the laws of states that are um, making and have made abortion illegal. It, you make abortion illegal, it doesn't stop. All the statistics show you that the number of abortions before Roe was not any different than the number after. 
And when states make it illegal, it doesn't stop abortions from happening. Women will do what they feel they need to do, regardless of the dangers to themselves. That was our experience before Roe, and it certainly is experience again. But I think there's all kinds of things happening all over the country. And as I always say to reporters, if I knew, I don't know the details. And if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. Because the way to protect those actors and the things they're doing is to let them do what they need to do out of the limelight. So that's what's important. I know for reporters, it's a juicy story and you want to tell it. And that was true in our day, too. We actually had a reporter who joined the group ostensibly to be a member. But in fact, uh, she dropped out almost immediately to write a, an article about us, which wow. we she was the most hated person in the group. <laughs> you know, I can't give out that information because I don't know it. But I know there are things happening all over the country. Well, lastly, Laura, what do you hope readers most take away from the story of Jane? Well, what I take away is the primary lesson I learned, which is that ordinary people working together can make a real difference in the greater culture. Because I firmly believe that Roe was decided the way it was decided, because so many people, including the clergy, were violating this law. You know, you can't have a society that runs by the rule of law if so many people are violating the law, you know. But that's what I really learned. Whatever it is, if a group of people get together, you can't do this alone, but ordinary people working together can change the world. And that's how the world changes. It doesn't change from leaders or heroes. It changes from what we choose to do in our own lives and for other people. Laura Kaplan was a member of the Jane Collective in Chicago, providing illegal abortions for women in the years leading up to the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. Her book documenting the group's history is The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. It was recently re-released by Penguin Random House following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last summer. Today, even in states where abortion rights haven't been heavily restricted or rolled back, getting the procedure can still be a complicated process for some women. For example, crisis pregnancy centers offer support and counseling to pregnant people in states across the U.S. and can sometimes be confused for abortion clinics, but they're ideologically opposed to abortion. As WSKG's Phoebe taylor Volo reports, they outnumber abortion clinics in New York state, and sometimes their proximity to abortion clinics has pregnant patients unsure of which experience they signed up for. The two nondescript buildings share a parking lot in the town of Vestal, just outside of Binghamton. Women's Health Services has a mural of a yellow flower. That's the abortion clinic. It's been around since the 1980s. Across the parking lot is Women's Life Services. That's the pregnancy center. They're opposed to abortion and instead try to provide alternatives to the procedure. They have a butterfly on their sign. The similarity of the names, the signage, as well as how close they are to each other sometimes causes confusion. 
So much so that in 2019, the abortion clinic started collecting anonymous forms from patients who accidentally ended up at the wrong place. I mistakenly thought it was the location I was supposed to go to, so I went in saying I had an appointment at the woman at the desk. She told me she would bring me in and talk to me. Uh, the name was the same or almost the same as the clinic. So they That's Susan Seibold Simpson, the executive director of the abortion clinic, Southern Tier Women's Health Services. She's reading through some of the forms they've gotten from patients. Um, she told me there was a good chance my marriage would fail due to the abortion. She gave me a gift bag, which includes the pamphlets and then a little... Seibold Simpson says because the two buildings are so close to each other, GPS sometimes drops patients off in front of the pregnancy center, even if they're trying to go to the abortion clinic. We tell people we have a painting of a large yellow flower next to our door. They have a butterfly on their sign. So they, you know, people, I'll say, look for the yellow flower, and they're like, well, I see a butterfly. Nope, that's not us. She says it has gotten better lately. Now they text people if they're late to their appointment to make sure they didn't end up in the wrong building. Or if they call me, we just go stand out front and we wave because we can see them over there. So we just wave and say, come on over here because they are, they're within calling distance. Crisis pregnancy centers sometimes offer free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds. Supporters of the centers say they connect patients with resources, local social services, and material support, like diapers or formula. But abortion advocates say the centers misrepresent themselves as medical clinics and provide misleading and inaccurate information to patients in the attempt to convince them to continue their pregnancies. Seibold Simpson says it would be fine if the centers only provided support for people who want to continue their pregnancies. But she says more often than not, patients looking for abortion care end up delayed and distressed. We've had patients call us saying they were so demoralized that they, they just went home. Peg Johnston co-owns the abortion clinic. She says the pregnancy centers are nothing new. Along with pro-life protesters, they've been following the abortion clinic since the 80s. They've been with us from the very beginning. When we were in the Binghamton Plaza, they were just up the street on Shenango. Then when we came to um, up by Dunkin' Donuts there, they had a place right across the street. And then when we came here, they were right over there, right across the parking lot. So I'm standing in front of Women's Health Services, which is the abortion clinic. And yeah, Women's Life Services, the pregnancy center, it's just across the parking lot. They're sort of on a diagonal from each other. It's a small parking lot. I'd say it's like 100 feet, maybe a little more. Gary Lieber is the executive director of Women's Life Services, the pregnancy center. He says they make it clear to people that the center is not a medical clinic. He admits some patients do end up there thinking it's the abortion clinic. But in an email, Lieber says there are no accidents with God. And he sees it as an opportunity for pregnant women to slow down, talk, and hear the facts about abortion, adoption, and parenting. Lieber says, like many other things, all three have risks. He says the center connects people with local resources and social services. They have a room with baby clothes and diapers. Lieber says they counsel women about all of their options and that their counselors don't pressure or judge. Uh, but uh, when it comes to abortion... Uh, it's easy to just have that word translated in the public to not really mean that a child is losing its life. 
Earlier this year, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation that directs the state commissioner of health to study the impact of crisis pregnancy centers. Alice Cartwright is a doctoral candidate in maternal and child health at the University of North Carolina. She co-authored a study that used Google ads to poll people who searched online for abortion care. The researchers asked people if they were pregnant and if they had gone to a crisis pregnancy center, or CPC. Then they checked back in with them four weeks later. We found that compared to people who had not visited a CPC, people who said that they visited a CPC, they were both more likely to still be trying to get an abortion and more likely to be planning to continue the pregnancy versus having had an abortion. So the study finds that people who had been to a pregnancy center were more likely to still be pregnant four weeks later. Cartwright says that could be for a number of reasons. Some patients weren't considering an abortion in the first place and went to the pregnancy centers for diapers or baby clothes or connection to housing services. The pregnancy centers could be scaring patients away from seeking abortion or delaying them so that it's harder for them to access an abortion. And it could just be harder to find an abortion clinic than a pregnancy center. Cartwright says ultimately people end or continue their pregnancies for all sorts of personal, individual reasons. She says that's one of the challenges when it comes to looking at the impact of pregnancy centers. But she says there's still a lot for states like New York to study. What types of services do they actually provide? Um, And who are the types of people who are visiting them? And then what are they actually seeking? from those places. Cartwright says that could also illuminate gaps in the public health and reproductive care system. That's WSKG's Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo reporting for 51%. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced and hosted by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks again to Laura Kaplan and Phoebe Taylor-Vuolo for joining us this week. To learn more about our guests and the topics we discuss on this show, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. There you can find episodes new and old and links to everything you need to know. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way A nightmare down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool